Welcome to the Trinity Forum Conversations podcast. You've likely noticed that information has become more and more accessible, and the tools for communicating with one another continue to expand. And yet we face a paradox. Community has become harder and harder to maintain, and the truth seems increasingly elusive. In this series, we'll focus on navigating the challenges of modernity. Our guests will give us insight on the nature of truth, the challenges of technology, and how to approach our common life. We'll talk with leading thinkers, including Jonathan Haidt, Peter Kreeft, Arthur Brooks, Francis Collins, and many others. In this episode, Sheree Harder and Ann Snyder moderate a conversation with Dr. Peter Kreeft and Reverend Eugene Rivers to unpack the nature and implications of ideology's reign in our present culture, both what it's doing to our intellectual vitality as a society and to our civic and organizational life. How do we get beyond ideology? Perhaps a better image than the one of a straitjacket, which is quite useful and accurate, is the biblical one. It's an idolatry. An idol is anything worshipped as God that is not God. And the two most popular idols, at least in Washington, D.C., are two animals. One's a donkey and one's an elephant. This episode is an edited version of our evening conversation from October of 2021. You can find the full video of that conversation along with our full catalog of event videos on our website, ttf.org. And check out the show notes on this episode for links to further resources. Here's Cherie Harder. There's plenty of evidence to suggest that the way we increasingly grapple with big questions of life, either as individuals or as a society, is largely through the framework of ideology, systems of thought or affiliation which favor the political over the relational, questions of division over questions of connection, the abstract over the particular, the utopian over the messy reality of embodied community, and rigid demarcation over the imaginative. And while ideology can certainly serve a purpose, the results of over-reliance upon it are increasingly evident all around us. Our identities have increasingly become more political and more ideological, even as our politics has grown more apocalyptic and our ideologies more incoherent. Ideological affiliations have actually superseded and even crowded out what were regarded as the deeper sources of identity, faith, family, neighborhood, and relationships, such that now, with surprising accuracy, it has seemed to infect and reflect our thinking to the point where one can now safely predict on the basis of one's views on immigration, their views on ivermectin. So how can we think more wisely about discerning truth and reality? How can we encourage frameworks that aim to connect rather than simply divide? Or are we, in the words, the eloquent words of my friend and partner, Ann Snyder, are we inevitably situated in a stream of assumptions that essentially locks us further into ideological straitjackets, or can we figure out a healthier, more humane path? Tonight, we will have the pleasure of hearing from and talking to two thinkers who have wrestled with such questions from very different vantage points. A prolific and active philosopher, as well as a thoughtful and heterodox activist. And both have done so with incredible intellectual rigor, consistent eloquence, and personal and academic courage. 
Dr. Peter Kreeft is a philosopher, the professor at Boston College and King's College, and one of the most respected and prolific thinkers and writers of our time. As we were walking over here, I was trying to do a little bit of a fact check, and I was like, Dr. Kreeft, is it true you've actually written 95 different books, thinking that must be an error? He's like, oh, of course not. I've written 105. <laughs> the author of 105 different books, far too many to, uh, to mention, but includes Christianity for Modern Pagans, Three Philosophies of Life, Summa of the Summa, If Einstein Had Been a Surfer, The Philosophy of Jesus, and Doors in the Walls of the World. Joining him tonight is the Reverend Eugene Rivers III. Gene Rivers is a minister, activist, and nonprofit leader who is the founder and the director of the Seymour Institute for Black Church and Policy Studies, a widely published writer and community activist who has advised both Bush administrations and the Clinton administration on their faith-based initiatives, as well as being a one-time Philadelphia gang member who later went on to study at Harvard, has been the subject of a Newsweek cover, and has served as a commentator at virtually all of the major uh, media outlets. Both Peter and Eugene will offer brief opening reflections on our topic this evening, after which they will engage with me and Anne in a moderated conversation, followed by questions from the audience. Peter and Eugene, welcome. So Dr. Craig, we'll start with you. Okay, mm -hmm. since I consider myself a disciple of Socrates, I like to begin with defining terms, because <laughs> I find it helpful to have some idea of what I'm talking about. An ideology is a man-made set of subjective values about politics. Christianity is a God-revealed set of objective truths about the nature of God and the nature of man. What's the relation between the two? What, do, what does Christianity say about politics? It's very easy to answer the question, what does Islam say about politics? Because there's a lot of politics in the Quran. It's very easy to say what Old Testament Israel says about politics because God revealed a lot of political details. The New Testament doesn't give you much advice about who to vote for. It does tell you a lot of social morality. It tells you principles that don't seem to fit into either of our two currently popular ideologies. And it gives you a very, very basic principle when Christ was asked a very specific question, should we pay taxes to the tyrant Caesar or not? Uh, rarely does Jesus answer a true false question by checking one of the boxes. And this time, and this time he did. But first he said, show me a coin, and showed him a coin. He said, whose head is that dirty head? Whose coin is that dirty coin? Caesar's. Oh, well, then give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and give to God what belongs to God. How do you apply that principle, which I think we all agree to, now, today? Let me, let me take the single most important and controversial specific issue facing our society, namely the legalized murder of two-thirds of a million of our children every year. Elizabeth Anscombe was a philosopher at Oxford, and her daughter was pulled into court for protesting too close to an abortion clinic. And she wanted to be her own lawyer, her own advocate. She was only 15 years old. And the judge lectured her 
said, you're a Christian, aren't you? Yes. Well, then you believe what your Lord and Master said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar's. And her reply was, the bodies of our own children do not belong to Caesar. So what does Christ say about our current social and political decadence? Both the left and the right say we're in, in the words of uh, George Bush, deep doo-doo, that is decadence. <laughs> what does it look like to win the culture war? Looks different from the perspective of the different ideologies, but we all want to win it, and we all want to save Western civilization. So from a Christian point of view, what's the most important and first thing we must do in order to save Western culture or Western civilization? Assuming that culture is simply the soul of a civilization and civilization is simply the body of a culture. Well, I think the first answer is stop idolizing it. Stop making the salvation of Western civilization your summum bonum, your final end, and religion a means to it. Religion is not a means to politics. Jesus Christ is not running for president. In fact, he ran away from attempts to make him king. He is the Lord. He's not the president. He's the author and therefore the authority and the beginning and also the end, the goal, the ultimate good of everything. So how do we get outside of the straitjacket of ideology? How do we get beyond ideology? Perhaps a better image than the one of the straitjacket, which is quite useful and accurate, is the biblical one. It's an idolatry. An idol is anything worshipped as God that is not God. And the two most popular idols, at least in Washington, D.C., are two animals. One's a donkey and one's an elephant. Too many Christians are tempted to look at their love of the lamb as a means to their love of the donkey or the love of the elephant. Let's get our animals straight. What's the source of this ideology? To cure a disease, you have to know its cause. You have to diagnose it. And the usual answer to that question is, well, we're kind of stupid. Uh, human weakness, you know, the flesh, fallen minds as well as bodies, and, and a fallen world. Yeah, there's the world and there's the flesh, but I think the source that is the most important and the most ultimate and the one we think of the least is the third source of evil, the devil. And I think it's biblical. Ephesians 6 verse 12 tells us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of this present darkness, against spiritual wickedness in high places. In other words, it's not just a political war, it's a spiritual war. Here are seven very simple principles of spiritual warfare. First, know you are at war. Read that verse. Second, know your enemy. Again, read that verse. Our enemies are not either political party. Our enemies are not uh, the ACLU or Planned Parenthood. Our enemies are not even Satanists. Our enemies are Satan. Third, in order not to lose a war, avoid civil wars in your ranks. The most efficient way for any army to win is divide and conquer. Fourth, as C.S. Lewis reminds us at the beginning of his classic screw tape letters, the devil is equally pleased by two errors about him to overestimate him and to underestimate him. Two very useful ways of losing a war. Fifth, obey your commanding officer. I just finished a book, just came out recently, called The World's Greatest Philosopher. 
and I believe the world's greatest philosopher is Mary because her philosophy is summarized in the very last words she gives to all of us, which covers just about everything. What she said to the waiters at the wedding feast at Cana, do whatever he tells you. Sixth principle, use the right weapons, his weapons. What are his weapons? The two absolutely absolute absolutes, the two things that God's very essence consists of, truth and agape love. And the seventh is, not only to do everything he tells you, but also to believe everything he tells you. And one of the things he tells us is an infallible prophecy, because he's infallible, about who will win this war in the end. And once again, the Bible uses a very concrete image for this, and it's an image of two animals. At the end of uh, the Bible, you have the book of Revelation, the apocalypse, and the heavyweight championship of the universe is being fought between two animals. One of them is called Arneon, and the other is called Therion, two Greek words. Arneon means lamb, but since they had a lot of lambs then, it was their main meat, they had a lot of different words for lamb. And this means wee little lamb, cute little lamb, harmless, innocent little lambkin. The Greeks also had a, a great imagination. They had a lot of words for monsters, and this one, Therion, was the greatest of all, dragon. It flew, it spit fire. It, eat you. So now in this corner, Arneon. In that corner, Therion. Who is going to win? Oh, it's a fixed fight. The dragon doesn't stand a chance because the lamb has a secret weapon, his blood. The dragon doesn't understand that. Here is Donald Williams' summary of that fight in the book of Revelation from Touchstone magazine. Some people find the book of Revelation hard to interpret because they're asking it the wrong questions. Jesus said, no one knows the day and the hour of his return, not even the angels or the son, but only the father. It's on a need to know basis. And you don't need to know, so stop trying. What do Christians need to know? That we are going to win so dramatically, so finally, so devastatingly, that the enemy will never be able to mount a comeback and that that win will last for all eternity. Meanwhile, the worst thing the enemy can do to us is simply to kill us, which is to put us under the throne in a white robe. So let's straighten our backbones and be faithful witnesses no matter how dark things look in the present. For John, that present was the Roman persecution. For us, it is the apparent loss of the culture war. Doesn't matter, the message is the same. Be faithful. Well, what about the principalities and powers then? God tells us, Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the principalities and powers. More concretely, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, when Paul says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Explore that image. Death is now a bee without a sting because Christ has saved us from its sting, which is sin. And therefore, Paul says in Romans 8, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Today, I think the apostle to the Gentiles would add demon-inspired ideologies that uh, idolize insanities like you can be whatever you want to be. Even they cannot separate us from the love of God.
What happens when light meets darkness, when you bring a match into a dark room? What happens when life meets death at the point when the soul leaves the body? What happens when love confronts hate? Christ happens. That's our answer. Very good. Reverend Rivers. Yes. First, I want to thank the Trinity Forum for convening this notoriously adult conversation. We are in short supply of spiritual, intellectual, and political adults. First point. Secondly, I, I have to give a shout out to my brother, Oz Guinness, who does not remember this because he's a younger man. I met him at Harvard University there. He was speaking at the business school and there were an assortment of white evangelical kind of inner varsity-ish groups. And they had brought Dr. Guinness, who was a heavy hitter. And I was the dust of death, right, was uh, the, the hot publishing intellectual event in the evangelical universe, right? And it was an extraordinary book. He and I would have had uh, some differences on his interpretation of Frantz Fanon. But barring that, it was, a, it was a perfect exercise, right, and was very stimulating. My rabbi here, Peter Kraft, has outlined some fascinating ideas and frameworks. I am a black Pentecostal preacher, so normally it takes me 15 minutes to clear my throat. <laughs> but since I'm a Pentecostal, I believe in miracles. Uh, consequently, I will flirt with brevity in, in the course of articulating uh, my reflections on uh, the subject. And uh, I, I, I can't stress enough how important what you've done here. And I want to touch on that as I uh, address these questions around uh, the current state of the culture ideologically. As a son, a spiritual son of Martin Luther King and Abraham Heschel and others, I, my definition of ideology in politics must be, by definition, more nuanced. If I read the Exodus story, there's politics from the beginning to the end, right? Not in any limited parochial sectarian way. So politics, like ideology, these are very expansive concepts. So there is a very narrow, parochial, not terribly intelligent, inflexible definition of ideology. And then there are much deeper and subtle articulations of ideological uh, mischief in politics. I was thinking back 100 years ago, while at Harvard, one of the, the giants was a, a professor. You young people, you will write this down. Daniel Bell. Daniel Bell, Henry Ford Professor of the Social Sciences at Harvard, who in 1960 authored a, an extraordinary book, The End of Ideology, powerful book. Now, much of his left misunderstood the text, and then Bell had a point of saying, well, if you had just sort of parenthetically decided to read the book, you would understand that, that in point of fact, I was not asserting the end of ideology. In fact, it was the reverse, that there was going to be, within the context, the book is written in 1960, 
there's going to be a proliferation of ideological movements that surface you know, in the context of the Cold War. Because you had the great power contest between the United States and the Soviet Union and, 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 and their respective teams. Then Bell argued that there would be this proliferation of ideological movements because some of you, you know, most of you are probably not old enough to remember this, right? There were a whole series of national liberation movements, and then there were subsets of the Warsaw Pact. And so th there was a lot of ideological activity. And so Bell actually is trying to introduce uh, his reading public in the United States to the, the importance of studying and, and developing a more nuanced understanding of what ideology meant because not only was ideology a secular instrumentality, there were the religious versions of ideology. There was the crude reductionist materialism of the liberation theology, which was politics, small p, based on some re reductionist materialist epistemology, right? So you, you have that kind of, kind of ideological movement going on and, 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 and my, the thing I'd like to say, and, I, and here again, we, I want all y'all to praise, right? So the Lord uh, keep the miracle of my brevity you know, in, in view, right? We are at a period in history where, and I want to go to one of your very powerful points, the Ephesians 6 chapter for the Pentecostal, yeah, that's, one of our, that's one of our chapters, right? Principalities and powers, we do that, right? So we're, we're, we're praying you know, about the principalities and powers, we're, we're praying, you know, and, and, and wickedness in high places. Well, I'll tell you what's very interesting about that passage. Paul is a much more sophisticated thinker than people give him credit for being. Because Paul, in talking about the principalities and powers, also is alluding to the idea of principalities and powers in the cosmos. There are political institutions that exist that are saturated with demonic forces. And so Paul puts an emphasis on this, he, he, and he moves back and forth throughout the New Testament in Romans, talking about principalities and powers and acknowledging the implicit and explicit ideological dimensions, which are spiritual. I got some for y'all. You see, the present context with the emergence of white supremacy, and that's what it is, y'all. Y'all ain't got to be nervous. I'm not going to go black on you, right? No, white supremacy, right? White supremacy must be understood politically as a spiritual force. My brother here talked about idolatry. You see, idolatry involves, in many instances, politically and culturally, the elevation of the created above the creator. At that point, we experience the, the nature of evil institutionalized. And this is a very, this is a very, very important point here, because the entire discussion around what's going on in the United States, right, with January 6th, which we are terrified to even look at. Say amen, y'all. Y'all know we don't want to mess with that because you don't want to step on a third rail, and so everybody prances around. And one of the unfortunate things about that is that the church <coughs> had an opportunity. 
to be a prophetic witness. Somebody needs to say amen. Amen. <laughs> and as a result, when God had provided an opportunity for the church to actually come together, we punted <coughs> on this kairos moment where crisis and opportunity intersect. And we fumbled the ball. Now, <coughs> your discussion this evening is absolutely fantastic. It's a perfect place to begin because the only people, <coughs> Rabbi, that can initiate a dialogue that has any possibility of not descending into complete madness is, is the, the people of Jesus Christ who make a commitment, watch this, to the truth. The book says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? No man comes to the Father but by me. We must have a spiritual, moral, and personal commitment to speaking truth in love. Right now, we got a tough situation. It's real ugly. January 6th, see, because we had to dance around everything, everything, was an attempted insurrection. That's what it was. Now, I'm just going to tell the truth. Now, I'm, now, let me just say this, just to be clear, right? Because somebody might confuse Riz with being a Democrat because he said that. That's how stupid the culture is. I am a pro-life Christian. Full stop. Pro-life hardcore. Committed to the gospel and committed to the revolutionary politics of Jesus. I'm going to come back to this political thing, right? Because see, Jesus says, and this is fascinating, right? I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, I'm, I'm bring this thing in on the ideology stuff. Jesus says, you know, in that fourth chapter of uh, Luke, uh, he, he walks up in the synagogue, right? Walks up, the little boy walks up in the synagogue, walks up to the 61st chapter of Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord has anointed me. Now, this is deep. This is his inaugural address. Rabbi, right? This is his inaugural address where he's announcing what his, his, his political agenda is. And here again, we've got to be more subtle and sophisticated. See, there's politics at some kind of ignorant, you know, pseudo-bipartisan level. And then there's politics at a metapolitical and philosophic level. And so we have to have a much more nuanced understanding of A, politics, and, and B, ideology. You see, this is, this, is, this is important because the Christians, we now have an opportunity to be salt and light. Again, I am so proud of the Trinity Forum and the work that you do, and I was amazed I was somewhere, and they had one of those gorgeous little pamphlets that you folk produce, right? And what was actually quite astonishing, right? I said, Lord, there's hope. There's hope, hope still yet exists. They had produced a pamphlet with a, a speech from Nelson Mandela and Martin Luther King. I said, oh, Jesus, Lord have mercy, right? I thought this was a hardcore Republican shop. So when I saw that, <laughs> I said, oh, Jesus, pray, Lord bless him, Lord. Just help him, Jesus, right? And what was striking to me was the understanding, and God bless you, Father Guinness, right? Because, I mean, this is, you gave birth to this thing, right? You know, what was astonishing was that in simply, in that simple gesture of making yourself open to dialogue and discussion, you know, it wasn't as though everybody's going to agree with what Mandela said, 
right? Or Martin Luther King, for that matter. Mm -hmm. But there was an openness, right, and a humility so that when we engage in a larger public discourse, you know, we engage with a certain, one, go to your thing, agape love. And we wrestle with the fact, and, and this is, you know, the Seymour Institute is praying about convening a, 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 a seminar and conference on the churches and the threat of white supremacy and domestic terrorism from the theological vantage point. So I'm not doing left politics. I'm saying if I read the scriptures in terms of principalities and powers, the only way to conceptualize the demonic is to understand it through the lens of faith and, the, and a biblical worldview that affirms the reality of the demonic. See, what happened on the 6th was pretty evil. I mean, you ain't got to be, you know, you ain't got to be a political scientist, right, to sort of put together. That was, that was, that was pretty over the top. And, and what was significant, and I'm, I'm connecting this to the ideology, we must engage in a much more radical reading of the, the Bible. We have kind of a safe, take no risk, exegesis and hermeneutical method so that we don't get too close to anything that might shake things up. I mean, it's, it's interesting, right? Because if Exodus, Exodus is a rough book. And what's fascinating is that one of the best essays dealing with ideology is Michael Walzer's book, political philosopher Michael Walzer, called Exodus and Revolution. That's a, he's a bad boy. And what he does is he says, look, politics is much more nuanced and complex than people understand it to be because there's just this generally simple-minded, narrow you know, view. I'm bringing it in right now. Our discussion of ideology must be conducted at a higher conceptual level. It must be much more sophisticated. I want to bring this back around to Brother Guinness. You see, 100 years ago, I began reading a man named Francis Schaeffer. Right. And Francis Schaeffer was important, not because he got everything right. Francis Schaeffer was important because he was one of the first evangelical Christians to try to engage modernity. No one else was doing that. I'm a protege of Carl F.H. Henry. Now, that's real crazy, right? Carl F.H. Henry, uh, James Boyce. These are uh, scholars that adopted me, which is how I ended up at Harvard. And my point is that we must build on the traditions and engage in a deeper reading with a more robust hermeneutic that understands the, the subtleties. You see, because right now, we're basically talking to ourselves. Say amen, y'all know that, right? We're the insular deal, very Christian, you know, you know comfortably and politely white, but, but, but not engaging in the kind of dialogue and providing the leadership that you have the capacity, because you're the upmarket, smarter wing, your, your, your squad. For that reason, you must provide the moral and intellectual leadership by engaging in a much deeper, radically biblical way. And when that happens, when we commit ourselves to the love of God and the truth, having the courage to say a tough thing. Martin Luther King read the Bible. 
And he had a radically biblical understanding of the text so that there was agape love, a commitment to serve the poor, and to model the gospel. When we decide that we will have the courage to follow Jesus in that way, God will be glorified, and God will then heal the land. Amen. That was a miracle, y'all. <laughs> thank you, Gene, and thank you, Peter. There's certainly a lot to unpack there. Ann and I probably have a ton of questions, so we'll probably fire a lot at you fairly rapidly, and then we'll move probably in the next 10 to 15 minutes or so for questions from the audience. So one of the first things that kind of occurs to me just in listening to both of you, you talked about ideology and politics and theology, and certainly one of the things we have seen is exactly what the founders most feared, which is the kind of affective polarization or essentially angry antagonism that far supersedes the actual, you know, any actual intellectual disagreement that makes it very difficult for people to transcend that and uh, seek the common good as opposed to very narrow victory. But we've often tended to associate that with sort of deep-rooted philosophical uh, convictional clashes. But there's actually a fair amount of evidence to suggest that the way people choose their allegiances or choose their ideology is often less intellectual or philosophical than it is really aesthetic. It's you see something that appeals to you and you want to affiliate with that group. And often that desire to be belong to something, it winds up being what shapes our policy preferences as opposed to vice versa. So I wanted to ask you both about how I, that sense of identity or affiliation drives some of our ideological tribalism. And yeah, we'll, we'll start with Eugene. Eugene. There is a political scientist, John J. DiUlio. He was the architect of the faith-based initiative for Bush. And we were having a conversation. This must, this, 15, 20 years ago. And he says to me, he says, look, everybody's looking at blacks in the cities and worried about the violence thing. He says, what you guys are doing is peanuts. He says, there's a level of alienation and anger among working class urban whites, oh, you know, fly over America, who feel that they've been left behind. They're poor, working class, sub-working class, you know, white males, and they're very angry, and the, the bicoastal elite, right, you know, the, the pretty people, have ignored them. And Diulio says, there's gonna be an explosion. Quick point, right to your question. There was a political philosopher named Richard Rorty, he died, big guy at Princeton, got around. He wrote a book, Finding America, or Toward America. And he had one section where he says, look, at a certain point, there, something is going to crack among the poorest working class whites. Their anger, their frustration, their humiliation, their, their own economic deprivation. And it's going to crack. Mm -hmm. It's going to crack. And this has to do with the collective existential crisis of very poor people who feel that they've been 
looked down upon by everybody. It's less ideology than pain, disappointment, and frustration that the American dream, right, has abandoned me. And he says, I turn on television and I look at these black dudes that barely graduated from high school, making $20 million a year, dumping the ball, right? And while that kid that's a basketball player, that's not his fault, I understood the sort of the existential crisis and the pain uh, and, and the absence of self-respect with that guy. And what happens on the 6th had been building for years. It wasn't a partisan deal. And we have to, at some point, intellectually, so that, to your question, put pain on the table. There, there, there's sort of an aesthetic. Put pain, put humiliation, put genuine anger and frustration, because the promises that were made to me, Joe Sixpack, have been a lie, because the fix is in, and the bankers and the bundlers benefited at our expense. When you, when you say aesthetic, the first thing I think of is a human face rather than uh, an economic system. People often ask me whether I'm a Democrat or a Republican, and I say, well, I used to classify myself as a liberal Democrat. Now I classify myself as sort of a conservative Republican, but I haven't changed my mind on a single issue. They just changed the labels. <laughs> and when, uh, when I saw Harry Truman, I liked him, even though he's a Democrat. And when I saw Richard Nixon, I didn't like him, even though he's a Republican. My parents always voted Republican. And when Ronald Reagan was president, I say, now there's a, a smart man. And the media doesn't like him. They say he's stupid and sleepy, but I don't think he is. And he basically helped us win the Cold War. Uh, and then I see Donald Trump, and it makes me ashamed to be a Republican. So I think the human trustability and personality of a candidate is, is what counts enormously, mm -hmm. especially in, in, in visual media. Until Barack Obama, I think every president that won, won because he had better hair. <laughs> Obama had better teeth. Okay. <laughs> if Jesus was running for president, I think he'd win. Although he'd probably uh, incite civil war among those who really were terrified of him. Mm -hmm. The ones who were inspired by uh, you know, the war room below. So I think that integrity and trustability and honesty and consistency and predictability and identity with all people, especially ordinary people, are much more important than political affiliation, ideology, or programs. Just to follow up on that and kind of take it in a different direction, as you mentioned, uh, Gene, it's often the elites who are the most deeply dug in in terms of their ideological categories through which to view the world. And one of the things we've been talking about is essentially how do you get out of that rut? You know, how do you basically see through different glasses? But you know, our categories really do shape our view of the world, such that putting on a new lens you know, is itself an act of reformation. What does it take to get there, to essentially enter into that process of reformation that we so desperately need? And I'll start with you this time, uh, Dr. Humility. Augustine asked to name the four cardinal virtues, responded, humility, 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 and humility. If pride is the devil's sin, humility is Jesus' answer. Mm -hmm. And humility of mind means, my goodness, I might be wrong. 
Some of you might be old enough to remember the old sitcom Happy Days, where Fonzie, who is very, very cool, has to apologize <laughs> to Ralph Mouth, who's you know just the opposite of cool, and he made a mistake in uh, advising Ralph to join the Marines. It was ruining Ralph's life. So Robbie convinces Fonzie that he's got to go and tell Ralph that he was wrong. And Fonzie says, I can't do that. It's not cool. And he's persuaded to do it. So he approaches Ralph. Ralph, you know, that time I advised you to join the Marines? Yeah, 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 Fonzie, you you were so right. Of course he wasn't, and Ralph's miserable. You know, Ralph, I was, I was, I was, I was, I can't say that word, it's so uncool. That's what we got to do. <laughs> We're fallible. So, are so, three erasers in the ends of our pencils. Okay. So, so, so the, the, the proposal is to be uncool. Yep. Well, by that, well, well, wait a minute. Then we're already there. <laughs> <laughs> no, in the opposite direction. Uh, okay. You. Oh, no, 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 okay. So, look, uh, on, on this question, mm -hmm. if history's sort of any lesson, right now, the world is waiting for God's people to step up. Mm -hmm. Our reputation is so mm -hmm. bad. Mm -hmm. I mean, bad, with plausible reason. Right. This is a Kairos moment where if we'll humble ourselves and pray, turn from our wicked ways, right. that's right. If we'll do that, God, you know, hear from heaven and heal the land. But there must be a period of abject humility. We have religious institutions that we invest more faith in then we do God. Mm -hmm. So we play the religion game, or the church game, or the denominational game. As a result, young people, there were some Pew uh, studies that were just recently done. We were talking about them at a Bruderhof meeting. And uh, young people said, listen, our thing is not what you believe. Our thing is that you don't believe nothing. Mm -hmm. What you're supposed to believe, you don't believe. Um, we need an insurgent intellectual movement to win the young. In all my work, my focus is on the future. That those are the only people. Look, I'm interested in communicating with the uh, 20 to 30 year old people with an eye to 2050. Mm -hmm. If you don't play long game, you're not in the game. It's all long game. And there has to be. And I see the nucleus of that here. There has to be an insurgent intellectual movement. One example, King, and this is beautiful. If you had gone to the American Political Science Review in 1950 and gone to the stacks and read through right, American Journal of Sociology, looking for Montgomery 1955, I want you to watch this, this is deep, no one in 1950 thought religion had anything to do with anything. If you read partisan review, commentary, all of the intelligentsia of that period, they had dismissed, you know, Billy Graham, that was some trailer park stuff. He was a good looking dude with the fancy hair, but right. The Christians were not credible. That's the, I'm making an intellectual analytic point. We weren't credible. 
when King surfaces, the country was completely shocked. Mm -hmm. No one saw that coming. None of the prognosticators saw it coming. I would say the same thing now. The country's in the middle of a crisis. There is a Kairos opportunity for the people of faith to bring a, a, something to the game which is fresh, you know, exciting, and courageous. Part of the reason the kids don't have nothing to do with us, the Christian thing is pretty much a pretty cowardly operation. That's what Solzhenitsyn said in his Harvard commencement. Uh, people are bored. That's right. You don't have no, courage. No. So, uh, and now, now, I'll tell you what's interesting. Solzhenitsyn was channeling King. Yep. King had said that 20 yep. years earlier. Yep. Right? And so there's this great strategic opportunity. Um, yeah. Well, there's no reason anybody can't be the next Martin Luther King. Right? And, but they need the Peter Krebs to give him the wisdom. In other words, no, no, this, this is very, very important, Doc, because part of our difficulty is that our institutions no longer are morally credible to our young. In fact, in fact, the Labrie movement was God raising something up because the churches had become obsolete wineskins. Jesus says you don't put new wine into an old wineskin, an obsolete paradigm, if you will, mm -hmm. right? We've got, we, we need new paradigms such as this that are intensified because outside of similar forms, it doesn't look good. And the reason that has to be uncool is that you, the closer you get to Christ, the closer you get the splinters from his cross. Right. That's right. You're going to tick Amen. people off. If Amen. you don't, you're not doing his work. Amen. Dr. Crafe, Reverend Rivers, thank you for a very wide-ranging conversation. <laughs> As promised, we will end with a final word from both of our speakers, one sentence or less. So we'll start with you, Dr. Crafe. Throughout the history of the world, there has always been one force that is stronger than ideology or politics or anything else. And even in today's ever-changing world, that force will convert the world, and that is interpersonal love, the love of God in Christ. Thank you, Dr. Craven. And Reverend Rivers. Amen. Amen. <laughs>Thank you for listening to this episode in our series on navigating the challenges of modernity. Be sure to subscribe to Trinity Forum Conversations podcast to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. And if you're enjoying these, please leave us a review. Visit our website at ttf.org for more information and show notes from this episode, as well as resources such as our Trinity Forum readings and videos of our past events.